Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 425, Here Comes the Commandos. Last time, General George Marshall, Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army, was coming to London to light a fire under the perceived sluggish British. What's more, he was bringing a big plan for a cross-channel invasion for the following year, 1943, and a smaller plan, much like Sledgehammer. But however and with whatever the British had to show the American general, it had better be good. London sensed that Washington was ready to take the lead in this war with little thought of maintaining the British Empire. But squaring off against Marshall would be Lord Louis Mountbatten, second cousin to King George VI, and hopefully his famous charm, General Brooke, and other chiefs enjoyed his company, would win over this man, this American, who rarely smiled and rarely saw a reason to smile. Charming, of noble blood, but also Lord Mountbatten was energetic and hardworking, as if Dickie knew his pedigree could be the beginnings of a successful military career, but only that, a beginning. And now that he was here, it would be up to him, his charm, and his leadership skills. The question was, were his leadership skills equal to his service record, which honestly saw too much loss of life and bad decisions, mostly based on blind ambition, yet he knew he could pick up the phone and speak to the king if he got in a bad way, which happened time and again. Not that it mattered now, as Churchill, Admiral Pound, and the others admired this young man, who, if he got things right, might take them up with him that is, the ladder of promotion and at least recognition. Not exactly a solid basis for a country at war. But there was one field in which few could beat Dickey, and that was the field of public relations. After placing a call that ended with him being chosen as the next captain of the carrier HMS Illustrious in August 1941, in early October he was sent to the United States to go get his vessel as she was being repaired in Virginia. And while in the U.S., Churchill ordered him to charm the Americans, high and low, influential and common. And Dickey was a success. After meeting Admiral Harold Stark, U.S. Chief of Naval Operations, Dickey asked Stark if he could go to Pearl Harbor. This was agreed to, and Dickey spoke to the naval personnel at Pearl. At the end of his speech, someone asked, Where would the war come if the United States was to get involved? Without hesitating, Dickey said, here at Pearl Harbor. The room jeered at this, but the man was right. Of course, being on a charm offensive, he could have been sincerely saying that, or he could have been relying on an old trick, as this was an opinion question. He could have simply wanted the room and everyone in it to feel included, so he said, here at Pearl Harbor. The tour, for that's what it turned out to be, was over. But before this, Dickey had gotten Walt Disney to design him a mascot for his new ship. Disney produced a sketch of Donald Duck in an admiral's uniform holding a miniature, it was a carrier after all, aeroplane, complete with a Union Jack. But while in the U.S., Dickey got a message to hand over the illustrious to someone else and head for home, quick smart. Dismayed, He did as he was ordered, but not to fear. It was more good news. On October 25, 1941, at Checkers, the Prime Minister told Dickey that he 
was the new head of Combined Operations HQ. And it was during this visit that Churchill filled young Dickey in on how he saw Combined Operations helping with the war effort. With Dunkirk being a successful retreat of men, not materiel, Churchill knew that Britain had to go into survival mode. Oh, they would return to the continent one day, but not on any day that could be seen from late 1940. No, that's where combined operations came in. The Prime Minister needed someone to take combined operations, or COHQ, and not only show the Germans that Britain was still in the fight, but to show the Americans, and then the Russians as well. Equally important, the operations themselves were to weaken the enemy and make it possible for a cross-channel invasion that the U.S. and USSR wanted so badly, one day in the future, that is. And the best way to weaken or even get at Germany at this point was by bypassing the seas and their occupied territory, namely, to fly over all that. Thus, it would be the RAF that would be the tip of the spear to draw blood from their enemy. But having an air force themselves, the Germans would be ready for this. Still, on May 30th, 1942, for the first time, a 1,000 bomber raid was conducted from the British Isles. And with this completed, the War Cabinet could picture a day where the enemy would be weak enough, and the first major target had been Cologne. As for taking the fight to Germany on land or using the seas, that was a bit more tricky for now. First, the army was being re-equipped, having left practically everything on the shores of Northwest Europe, and the Royal Navy was scattered thin as it was. This meant, for now, hit and raid runs for combined operations along the enemy's periphery. And then someone handed Churchill the form that his desire for taking the fight to the enemy would take itself. South African-born Lieutenant General Dudley Wrangell Clark, who would be remembered by those in the know as the greatest British deceiver of World War II, got a suggestion to Churchill to establish a specialized raiding force, kind of like the South African commandos. After all, it was these units that gave Britain hell during the Second Boer War from 1899 to 1902. Churchill, given his personality, immediately ordered the raising of specially trained troops of the hunter class who could carry out a vigorous, enterprising, and ceaseless offensive against the whole German-occupied coastline. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, 
visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As this was a new undertaking, it would have its growing pains. Indeed, only two missions were carried out early on. But in time, it would grow to achieve remarkable results and inspire the Special Air Service, or SAS, founded by David Sterling, and the U.S. Rangers. But to put this new entity into context concerning combined operations, it was Lord Lavat, a volunteer of the commandos, who said, Without the benefit of a combined planning authority to provide maps, intelligence, and transportation, air cover, signals, and specialized weapons, the outcome of each sortie became a comedy of errors. And combined operations couldn't get involved fast enough with the commandos, as their first raid, activated only three weeks after Dunkirk, went less than spectacularly. Just over 100 men, broken into four groups, were taken by launches to just south of Boulogne. Their assignment was to sneak up on a nearby hotel along the coast that was being used as a military headquarters. Once there, they were to liberate any POWs and grab whatever documents were to hand. But the entire fiasco was an example of what not to do. On the way over, one group was decimated by RAF patrols who did not know of the mission, so they shot up the boat. It could have been much worse. Another group roughly ran aground. For those who did make it ashore, they found for their pains nothing. The hotel was a ghost house. There were no prisoners to free or enemy prisoners to capture. Not to be outdone, in mid-July 1940, there was another raid launched. The target this time was the Channel Island Guernsey. A few weeks prior, on June 30, 1940, the Channel Islands were occupied by the Germans. Two days later, Churchill wrote to General Hastings Ismay that Guernsey would be the perfect place for the commandos to operate. A plan was quickly formulated. Operation Ambassador, as the raid would be called, set as its goal an attack on the island's airfield while destroying any aircraft. Also, enemy casualties that could be taken, well, that would be icing on the cake. 140 men would execute this, and they were troops from Number 3 Commando, led by Lieutenant Colonel John Dunford Slater, and Number 11 Independent Company, commanded by Major Ronnie Todd. But first, intel was needed. So, a Lieutenant Herbert Nicole, born on Guernsey, was taken to the island on late July 7th by sub. HMS H-43. Three days later, he was retrieved and reported on the 469 enemy troops on the island and at least one weakness, that is, the delay of communications for when reinforcements would be called to the machine gun posts along the coast, as most of the men were centered around St. Peter Port on the island's east coast. The plan of attack created by Durnford Slater would have three landing points as the men were to split up. The independent company would actually attack the airfield, while the larger group of commandos created a diversion. But then, it all went south. First, the most successful group of 40 men from Number 3 Commando did land successfully, and that was despite a faulty compass on their launch. And because of a second faulty compass, one group was taken to the wrong island, Sark, 
As for the two other parties, they hit rock, literally, and two more launches gave up the ghost before the men could even get started. The 40 men that did land at 12.50 a.m., now July 15th, went to shore but could not find a single German soldier. Looking around, thinking they had to achieve something, a section of a stone wall was removed to make a barrier on a road that went to the airport, and they cut a few telegraph lines. And with that, they ran back to the waiting destroyer that had orders to leave them behind if they were late. The commandos made damn sure they were not late. When all was said and done, no Germans had been captured. The airport was left untouched. A few lines had been cut, but the commandos had lost four of their own, either captured or drowned. The post-action autopsy was undertaken, and it wasn't much prettier than the raid itself. But much was learned from this that would help in future operations. Still, for now, all involved had to endure Hurricane Churchill and his high winds. So, no surprise, Churchill responded, let there be no more silly fiascos. And with that, he put retired Admiral Sir Roger Keyes in charge of combined operations. That the man had been fierce during the Great War, no one doubted. But as he had backed the Prime Minister during his time in the political wilderness, Churchill was paying back that loyalty. Still, it worked out, as Keyes stuck to the basics, as opposed to the last operation, where basic equipment was either defective or incomplete. Indeed, in March 1941, Operation Claymore saw the destruction of a fish processing factory on the Lofoten Islands just off Norway. But don't be fooled by that. This was a vital accomplishment, as the enemy now had less glycerine for their TNT. The Germans had converted this fish processing factory to something more nefarious. Well, now it lay in ruins. But even better, Operation Claymore had served another purpose for something that, if the British could survive long enough, may be instrumental in turning this war around. London had, by now, started working on breaking the Germans' Enigma machine that encrypted its messages. It had taken a lot of work, but in March 1940, the Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, but specifically Alan Turing, had designed and created the bomb to begin to decrypt German messages. The material that came from it would be called Ultra. And with this access to German messages, the Admiralty, and within it the Naval Intelligence Division, or NID, started steering their convoys away from the U-boats. But it wasn't long before Turin's work was being left behind, as the Germans changed their code or added rotors to the Enigma to create more possible ways of scrambling a word or message. Thus it was determined for the British to get their hands on an actual Enigma machine, but even better, the codebooks that were currently being used. But to go after something so specific would tip their hands, and the Germans would rightly make the necessary changes. So what to do? Which is when someone remembered the old saying, two birds, one stone. The commandos of combined operations were going to raid anyways, might as well use that as a cover to pilfer Enigma-related materials. So, back to Operation Claymore, 
500 commandos, helped by free Norwegian troops and royal engineers, left the home island on March 1st. Conducting the transportation of them were two landing ships and five destroyers. Three days later, the Lofoten raid was successfully carried out. The Germans had been partying the night before and were awakened not by a gentle sun, but fierce British shouts. 228 German POWs were taken away, along with 300 islanders who were inspired by what they saw, inspired enough to join the Allies. Now that's a successful recruiting moment. Oh, and besides the destruction of the fish processing plant, the commandos found the trawler Krebs, which had on board an Enigma machine and code books. Thus was Bletchley able to read German radio traffic for a glorious five weeks. But not all was perfect at combined operations. Yes, Keyes had been the man to write the ship, but as this entity had to borrow practically everything from either the Army, Navy, or RAF, its leader needed to be part diplomat, part ambassador, and Keyes was not that man. He had even called the collective chiefs of staff yellow. Another person was needed. Fast forward to the fall of 1941. Russia is now in the war, calling for material aid, but also a second front, to which the Joint Planning Staff replied in a memo to Churchill, to rush onto the continent before we are ready is to invite another Dunkirk, and that wouldn't help anyone except the Germans. As for the public response, well, that wasn't public either. Instead, the Ministry of Information gathered a few newspaper editors together and quietly explained the reality of the situation to them, asking them to lay off the pressure about a second front. They were getting enough flack from Stalin as it was. Then the Chiefs of Staff said to Churchill, nothing but an invasion will have any chance of pressuring the Germans to pull troops from the east. So the planning got underway. First, the Prime Minister wanted a plan based on landing tanks around Cherbourg. But this would change and change and change again for months. Until, that is, in late October 1941. Churchill had Mountbatten over for dinner and told him what he needed from him. Namely, to lay the groundwork for an invasion of northwestern Europe. In short, Mountbatten was to learn all he could to learn all aspects of raids and invasions. No detail was to be too small for his notice. And though Mountbatten himself and others have written of this moment as a moment of destiny, the truth is far more practical. Mountbatten was to oversee the training of all three services when they were called upon to work with combined operations. He was to learn all about invasions of all sizes and finally, and this was a constant in Churchill, to oversee the research and development of futuristic devices to make their operations more efficient. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, the first cue. When Lord Mountbatten entered his new digs at Richmond Terrace, now Richmond House, the department had all of 23 people working for it. But that number would soon balloon to hundreds, as Dickey had an energy that required numerous people to keep up. But besides that, no one was too low to be noticed by this new head. As to whether this was a genuine interest in people or part of his charm, that can be decided by others. 
But again, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So combined operations got going, and as the raids became more ambitious, more men were needed. Clearly, the commandos would not be enough. To wit, the chiefs of staff determined that regular troops, British and Canadian, which had been protecting the island from invasion that seemed not to be coming, would be used, which meant a lot of training, as the commandos had been at it since the end of Dunkirk. And the men who were training noticed right away something was different. They weren't being insulted. They weren't being put down. They were expected to be confident, yet to be open to having something new explained to them. So when they made a mistake, they weren't cursed out. They got explanations. Well, this was more like it. This was how it should have been the first time they went through this. Of course, these men were also told, there's a good chance you will not be coming back. Through the training, the men and commando units took shape. Only one in five made it all the way through training. But in the end, the typical commando unit would have 450 men. This was broken down into a headquarters and six troops of 66 men in each troop. By the end of March 1942, the commandos had been on 15 operations, though only six of these could be labeled a success. And in a bit of foretelling, while the commandos were busy, the 1st Canadian Corps, two full divisions, were not, and they felt this inactivity most keenly. Its commander, General Harry Carrere, like his men, simply wanted to fight, as that was the only way to win and end this war so they could go home. They had been on this island for 30 months now, and Carrere made it clear to Mountbatten and General Brooke that he and his men were ready to do anything, anything, that anything was coming ever closer. Greetings, everyone, from uh, Central Virginia. So, um, back from a 4th of July holiday. I hope you all had a safe holiday for you Americans out there, and I hope everybody still has all 10 fingers and toes. Anyway, I just wanted to say hi to some latest members and those who have donated. Let's see here. Uh, Donations. Joe Householder. Thank you very much, Joe, for the donation. I appreciate it. Uh, Let's see here. As far as my latest members that get two extra episodes a month, and I'm working on it now, or should I say Paul is working on it now, so you'll be able to get that through Apple. You won't have to... to, um, do it the way we've we've been doing it. So once it's all set up, I'll let you know, but there'll be an easier way to subscribe. Anyway, so the the newest members are Robert Badger from Benbrook, Texas, uh, Walter Sherman from San Antonio, Texas, and Walter donated. So thank you very much, Walter. And obviously, Texas is here to represent. Uh, There's Matthew Gabriel from Providence, Rhode Island, and Paul Cummings from Spring Green, Wisconsin. So thank you all very much for that, keeping everything going here. And now that we're back from holidays, I can... Well, actually, I'm going to the beach in a couple weeks. There'll be another episode out um, early next week, uh, just before I head to the beach. That's it for now. As always, take care, everyone.